It's good to be with you. I tend not to look at the topics when I come to Vandalia because you don't know what they are or what they're for. So I didn't know Jeremy was going to talk on that. I remember the first time I heard his story probably 10, 12 years ago in a church basement. But as he was talking, it dawned on me how well what I want to say ties into maybe what he said. I'm not going to talk about that topic, but we're still talking about the cure for those types of things. But before I get into that, I just I, as he was talking, I, I thought, and I think it's worth saying, one-third of pornographic addicts in the United States are women. The fastest growing age group of pornographic addiction in the United States is senior citizens. Might not seem right, but when you think about it, who has the time? It's the senior citizens. Who has the access? So it applies to all of us. I'm not going to put my phone number up there if you have any questions about my lesson. Right there. Right there. I'm in and out. I'm out of here. No, of course, you can talk to me if you care to. Decent exposure. We often think of the phrase indecent exposure. And I guess that went along a little bit with Jeremy's thoughts. But I've been asked to talk about building relationships in the church. How do we establish a culture of interreaction among church members? What is the value of being vulnerable and open with each other? What does the Bible say about how we are to truly know each other? Discuss the necessary sacrifices to build relationships, time, comfort zone, selfish, selflessness, and commitment to follow through, and on and on. Exposing ourselves. Two verses come to mind as I begin my thoughts. One is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And you knew those passages. You could quote them. Maybe you don't remember exactly book, chapter, and verse, but they're, un they're not unfamiliar passages. Kinship is one of the keys of the church. We usually think of the term kin as those who are physically blood-related to us. And of course, that is one of the definitions of it. But I think we should enjoy the feeling of kinship with many others besides our physical family. I even believe we should probably have stronger kinships with people who aren't our blood relatives than who are our blood, blood, blood relatives. Every person in our physical family tree, there are many more purple people 
to whom we are related to by sharing common joys, sorrows, interests, experience, and places. And that's what we're doing here. For one brief moment every year, this is not Ingleville. <laughs> it's more balanced. I think it's wonderful that that family has held together and been a key part of this congregation. But kinship is far more than blood. In fact, blood sometimes gets in the way of kinship. I've seen it. You've seen it. There's a kinship that all human beings ought to feel for one another. Despite our differences, there are many, we have many commonalities that ought to make us feel together. There's something about human nature that tends to hide its insecurities. On the outside, we seem calm, controlled. We have it all together. But we live in a me society. Jeremy held up his phone several times and I put mine in my pocket, but I, I don't have to get it out. His is a little bigger than mine. But it's called an iPhone. Now, there are probably some digital geeks here that could tell us what I stands for. I think it's marketing genius. We're an I society. So we have iPhones. We have iPads. We have iPods. And I cast no stones. I've got those. I've got them all. But why would Apple call it iPhone? Because we're a me society. Why didn't they call it WeFone? You're supposed to call somebody and talk to them on the phone. But it's not called a Wii phone, it's an iPhone. I was reading an article by an Amish, uh, I guess he was an Amish elder, that's the term they use. And we kind of realized that they, they discourage their people to use the telephone. And he was asked, why do you discourage people from using the telephone? And I thought his answer was very interesting. It wasn't a great theological treatise. He just said, when we just talk on the telephone, we don't talk face to face and we lose a lot by not talking face to face. And I think that's true. We spend time trying intentionally to link these less than perfect feelings together. Fearful that people might really see ourselves. Fearful that we might actually do what James says. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another. Trying to be perfect when we're not. You know, I think the key to perfection is to understand imperfection. Until we understand how imperfect we are, we're not ever going to become perfect. You ever go to the doctor for your annual physical and for a month you eat salad and broccoli 
and cabbage to get your cholesterol and blood pressure under control. You go to the doctor, your blood pressure and cholesterol are in control, so you stop at McDonald's on the way home and celebrate. <laughs> Who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? I've lost count of the number of Bible studies I've had with people not yet in the church, and one of their concerns is everybody there is so perfect and we just wouldn't fit in. I have to bite my tongue because I know, and many of you know, all of the stories behind the faces in our congregation, and perfection is not the primary story behind those faces. I don't share it because of confidentialities, but I want to scream out, if you only knew. But we hide them because we're a me civilization. Paul was a great man. But I believe never was his greatness more evident than when he exposed his own imperfections and vulnerability. One of his greatest lessons for us that we so readily ignore or miss is the imperfections of this great Christian man. But great as he was, he never saw himself as someone who was perfect. He saw himself as weak, vulnerable, disappointing, like us. But unlike us, he was probably a little bit more willing to admit it. And there comes the power when we overcome it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he talks about some of the difficulties he went through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, he again talks about some of the difficulties he went through. And, and he uses in those passages terms like, I, I, I spared for life. He, he was almost suicidal. I don't think Paul would have committed suicide because it would not have gone with his belief. But he got so depressed and so down that he just didn't know hardly where to turn. But that's not true. He did know where to turn. The tendency is to hide ourselves and not let others see us as we should. In Acts chapter 17 verse 6 when Paul, just before he goes to Athens, he was accused of turning the world upside down. I always thought that was an interesting phrase. Paul didn't turn the world upside down. He was trying to turn the world right side up. But if you'll allow me with this word me, maybe what we need to do is turn one letter upside down. And we become we. And therein lies one of the great strengths that we as the Christian community have. It's not the easiest one for us to take advantage of. As we mature, or maybe I should say as we unmature, we become less comfortable being open and unguarded. We have difficulty becoming a we. 
when we're so built in our own minds to be a me. When you are lonely, admit it. When you're afraid, admit it. When you struggle, admit it. When you need help, admit it. And that was a large part of Jeremy's lesson. But I'll take it, maybe not from the moral standpoint, I'll take it in another room. When you're in a Bible class and you don't get it, what about saying, I don't get it? Rather than sitting there and going home still not getting it. Why don't we like to say, I don't get it? I think it's because we don't want to embarrass ourselves and have other people think we're not very smart. Well, we might as well get over that because we're not very smart. (laughs) This isn't in my notes, but Donna and I had been married about three years. And she came in one day and said, and people think you're smart. (laughs) Well, see, we had a definitive line where the honeymoon ended. (laughs) That's a true story. But it was appropriate. Because none of us are really very smart. Oh, the energy we expend trying to make people think we're smart. You know, some of us are a little older. You don't have to be too old. Remember Betty Ford. She was the wife of President Gerald Ford. And she had... I think it was alcohol, but it might have been it might have been pills, an addiction, and she checked her into checked herself into a thing, and it it became known as the Betty Ford Institute or something like that. How much courage do you think it takes the first lady of the United States to tell the whole nation, "I'm in trouble"? She went from being a me to a we. Don't, don't, don't raise your hand and don't even give me a facial expression. But if you've ever gotten a speeding ticket, would you rather get a speeding ticket on a dirt road about five miles east of here or, or right now in front of this church? Almost all of us would take the dirt road. Why? Same fine, same breaking of law, This is embarrassing, and that would be more private. Curious, isn't it? Curious. Long before the cultural shift we saw that we now live in, a great conflict was already underway, and it was the me-we, or the I-us conflict. The powerful faces of individualism powered on by social networking. And yes, I'm going to make a couple of comments about social networking. I am not a fan. I don't condemn it. I've seen some good come out of it. But I've seen probably more not good, if that's a phrase. I remember reading one wag who wasn't a fan of it. He was talking about I think YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. He said we ought to all just call, we ought to just combine them all and call it you twit face. <laughs> I'm not sure we want to go that far. And some good does come out of it, but we do need to be careful. Jeremy touched on that, so I'll leave it alone. 
But so many times it's a look at me. And not a we. There's no such thing as a self-made man. It's an absolute myth. We all depend on the help of many other people. We give something back to our community to make sure, making sure hopefully it's not all about me but we. There's a Chinese proverb that says, tell me and I forget, teach me and I may remember, but involve me and I learn. That's the we. There's an interesting passage in Mark chapter 2. You're familiar with the event. It's when the several men take this uh, paralyzed or paralytic to Jesus to be healed. And there's such a crowd they can't get into the house where Jesus is. So they go up on the roof and they... They take some of the roofing away and, and they lower him down in so that he can be there to be healed. You're familiar with that story. But what I find particularly interesting or what I'd like to, to, to hone in on just a little bit here is in chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus healed this man and he t- we see why here in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, did you notice that? He did not say, when I saw the faith of the man who was sick. He said, when I saw their faith, which has to apply to the men who brought him there. When he saw the faith of the disciples, the brothers in Christ, who were so diligently trying to help this man. That's what impressed Jesus on that account. I don't doubt that the man with palsy had faith. But you don't have to have faith for Jesus to heal you. John chapter 5 and John chapter 9 are two instances where Jesus healed people that he that didn't even know who he was, let alone have any faith in him. Jesus would heal people to show his own power. But on this occasion, he saw the faith of the community around this man. And that's what touched Jesus. Louisiana, in their civil code, there's a phrase called celibatic relationships. And it's a relationship, it's a partnership relationship, legally referred to there, when both parties contribute something positive to the relationship. And therefore, both parties benefit. When two parties agree to work together, each helping in a certain way so that the result is beneficial to everybody. That's the church. That's Christians. That's the we. That's the us. Sometimes we'll hear people say, well, I just don't feel a part of the congregation. I just don't feel a part of the church. Well, sometimes those of us in the church aren't doing the job we need to to include them. But I sometimes have to think and ask them, what are you doing to be part of the church? 
What are you doing to be part of the we rather than simmering in the we, in the me? There's an old Carmanian proverb that says, Rain does not fall on one roof alone. Rain does not fall on one roof alone. We're to cry when our brothers and sisters cry, and we're to be joyful when they're joyful. We're to share those experiences. John Dunn, in his classic, had the phrase, No man is an island. And yet we try sometimes so hard to be an island. And I can really empathize with that. Because I tend to be a very, very private person as best I can. It's hard for me to be as private as I want to be because I'm looking at a lot of people a lot of the times. But that's not my elk. It's not my human preference, shall we say. I've always had good health, and a couple of months ago I fell into rather poor health, terrible health. And Shane, my youngest son, I was in ICU and... They were preparing Donna for she might not even ever take me home. And Shane came in and he said, Dad, what can I tell him tomorrow at church? Because he knew I had pretty strict standards about the answer, that's nothing. (laughs) But I gave him a little bit. I gave him a little bit. And one of the sisters in our congregation came up to Donna later and said, He must have really been sick to let you make that announcement. That's my personal elk, but it's not my best side. It's not my best side. It's just a side I have. The prayers of our brothers and sisters can be so important. You know, from time to time for all of us, I think the spirit of independence and individualism sweeps over us. And we become me people rather than we people. If you have brothers and sisters in the Lord that care more for your soul than they do your feelings, thank the Lord every night for that. Because most of the time, I am afraid, we care more about one another's feelings than we do one another's souls. And things that need to be pointed out don't get pointed out. Jeremy alluded to that you guys are going to get a double dose of his at at eminence. Well, he's on Wednesday and I'm on Thursday. And his is reproof and mine's correction. So we're going to dovetail again. But life does not revolve around me and it does not revolve around you. That's why we have corporate worship. That's why we have corporate worship togetherness why is it so hard for us sometimes to develop the relationships that I think we really want to well I don't have all of the reasons I think some of the hindrances are just laziness it takes work to have people over it takes work to socialize Sometimes our physical families get in the way of our spiritual families. 
We spend all Sunday with our physical families and maybe we could spend some of that time with our spiritual families in a social setting, not just in a worship setting. Sometimes it's insecurity. I've seen congregations that the eldership or leadership would try to get people to spend time in each other's homes and some people just don't want to host because they don't think their house is quite good enough or they don't think they're quite enough a good enough cook or it's going to take too much work to clean up the house. That's just short-sighted. All of our houses on occasion get a little messy. I had to rein myself in there just a bit. Some of our houses are always messy. But how important is that? But oh, the pluses of encouragement, support systems, and just plain fun. I know several of you, I know quite a few of you very well. And I did not get to know you very, very well in the assembly. I got to know you in your homes. That doesn't mean if I've never been in your home, I don't know you. But the time we spend in a more relaxed setting is, is when you really get to know people. That's, that's, that's got to be one of the great pluses of what I get to do. Spend time in people's homes. Get to know them. But we can all do that. And then you've got that support system that Jerry, Jer, Jeremy kind of alluded to. People to help you. Maybe sometimes we just feel alone because we haven't developed that support system. Some of you have heard me say this, but it's always stuck in my mind. Wendell Sparks, which was Rick's dad and I guess great-grandfather to a couple of people here. He sat in about the second row at Gregory Boulevard, if you've ever been there. And, and after the dismissal, he'd go out the side door up front. And I used to think, why is he going? There's no restrooms out there. <laughs> he was heading for the parking lot. Because he knew the people that he really needed to make contact with were heading for the parking lot. A special effort. A special effort. I've always remembered that. Lord, help us to consider your instruction in the righteousness that you've given to us. Lord, help our spirit, which has been called alongside, your spirit, which has been called alongside to us to help us as we go through life. May we be more we people in our work for you, in our fellowship one with another, in our confession of faults, to strengthen and to purify our lives. Remind us of those truths as we go throughout our daily lives. Remind us every day that we are to be we, not me, people. And let our lives show we've taken these truths to heart.
He established the church. Yes, to praise His name, to glorify His name. But I think He largely established the church because He he knew we needed one another. And only a fool ignores that. 